Okay, assalamu We are now live. And so, as some of you know, that have been joining us, I'm going to now see one person is on this far. We look forward to the rest of you coming in. So, as some of you know, that have joined us the past couple of weeks, assalamu on Instagram as well. Then we have been doing this, as you can say, called Good Counsel, where we answer your questions. And so, inshallah, we want to continue that today. So, and we wanted to start off talking about a couple of things, just some reminders before we get started, inshallah. Mm -hmm. Yes, assalamu alaikum, everyone, and Ramadan Mubarak. We pray that everyone is enjoying their fasting uh, thus far, and uh, certainly, of course, to remind everyone to stay safe, stay at home, and this is really an opportune time for us to uh, enjoy our fasting in the um, the quietness of our home and just getting our spirituality on and uh, relaxing and enjoying our families together, uh, inshallah. So today I just wanted to remind everyone before we begin and delve into our program, number one, folks, uh, the 2020 census is extremely important for our communities. Okay, go online, fill it out. This is a great opportunity for you to do it. No excuses. Um, just simply get on there, put in all the information that you need to put in. And again, be counted. We know that the census actually reflects um, the amount of funding that we get in our schools or hospitals and police department and all of the other major resources uh, that we need to have in our community. So please take a couple minutes. I did it when I first got it uh, for our family. It took less than 10 minutes, fill it out, and bam, it was gone. I did it over the internet, and um, certainly I, I felt um, very responsible as a citizen doing that and participating in such an important piece. I know some people are you know, constantly being suspicious of what our government may be doing with this information, but certainly, um, as stated online, that this information is confidential, right? Confidential uh, to a certain degree. Uh, but I think the most important thing is that you are counted uh, in terms of your community. Uh, we know that in New York and in New Jersey and certain other areas that we don't get enough funding that we need to get for our schools, our hospitals, and all the different resources that we depend on. So let's be counted, let's participate. The latest news I heard that um, in New York, it's only 40% of the people that have filled out the census. I know this is, uh, it could be a distraction because we're dealing with the COVID issue right now, but still people are home. So, you know, you can take a little time away from the TV, take a little time away from being on the internet and spend some time filling out that census and at least be satisfied that you are participating in something that can help your community, all right? And the same thing for New Jersey, at least 40% of people have filled out these, these, um, these census. So you know in your community and communities that you're, you're really underfunded. And we can tell by the example of the COVID crisis right now, right? People are understaffed. Most of the people that are working right now are essential employees um, essential workers, and again, thank you to those who are in uh, in the um, 
in the medical business, whether you're a janitor, whether you're a doctor, whether you're a therapist, you know, all matter. All, all of these titles matter. And as I said before, you know, titles is not something that I, I spend a lot of attention to. It's really, really what do you see yourself doing and how do you see yourself contributing as a whole to your community and to the people that you serve in terms of the work that you're doing. So with what we're experiencing now, we know that most of the illnesses are affecting uh, our community, the Black and Hispanic community, more so the African-American community, it has a greater number of uh, illnesses and debt as well. And just remember that, you know, some of the things that we talk about where you are susceptible to this type of disease are usually people who are having compromised immune systems, right? So I just want to say to those of us who are not taking care of ourselves as well as we can, and inshallah, you will do so. Um, for those of you who are smokers, and again, this is information that I'm getting through pretty much reliable sources, that you are more at risk in terms of your respiratory uh, system, right? Because you're compromising your lungs. And of course, when that is... is um, when that is hampered, then you have a, a difficult time, an even more difficult time. And of course, with all the other um, criterias and people who are put into different categories for this illness. And of course, if you can and afford, and you can afford to, uh, to help, to volunteer, to cook, to take some food to the workers in the hospitals, please do so. Anything that you can do can help. And of course, our prayers is um, extremely important in that regard. So again, your 2020 census, and of course, being careful with what you're doing and enjoying this, this Ramadan in, you know, probably some precious time that we probably would not have had, you know, running back and forth to work and trying to keep our fast and, and all the different distractions, right? So now we don't have those distractions and Allah knows best that we can do and have a great Ramadan. All right? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's alhamdulillah. Those are um, all really important things. And I do want to also remind people that if you are unemployed, which many people are, or even if you may be waiting for the stimulus check, I'll try to put this link in the description because there is a specific form that you need to fill out to get the direct deposit. And it seems to not be the same as the regular form that you're filling out for, um, you know, just to get either it's the unemployment or there are a couple of things going on. And, you know, uh, this COVID-19, it's affecting many of us in different ways. And so it's really important at this time that we try to go and see, you know, what the government is offering. Uh, I was just talking with my sister and, and my mom has said this many times that, you know, the, there are programs available. And sometimes those of us who are not super, not the super wealthy, um, we can feel bad taking advantage of those programs because we've been taught, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, don't depend on the government, we're scapegoated all the time, um, whether you're anywhere from poor to middle class, right, everyone but the wealthy. But the reality is the very, very wealthy are taking advantage of these programs, and mm -hmm. we should be too. We shouldn't feel guilty, even though there is, unfortunately, um, 
that psychological baggage just mm -hmm. because of uh, this, this sort of rhetoric against from society. So I wanna encourage people to do that. And then when it comes to Ramadan at home, I think that you're so bright that as much as it may be difficult because maybe you lost your job or whatever else you're dealing with, people can't go to school. Um, at the same time, it's also an opportunity. I remember when I was in Jordan, there was a sister there who was gonna be there for, for Ramadan, for just for Ramadan. And she had done something where she either saved up her time or something she did just so she could take the entire month off for Ramadan. And I thought, you know, mashallah, that, that's such a wonderful thing because when you're in the norm of going to school and going to work and the nine to five or the eight to three, um, it kind of takes away from the specialness of Ramadan that, you know, a lot of Muslims in majority Muslim countries, they can sort of flip their entire schedule around. If you've ever been to a Muslim country during Ramadan, they take it very seriously. Mm -hmm. Stores will be closed until later in the evening. Um, work schedules will be flipped to accommodate Muslims. And so mm -hmm. this is like, alhamdulillah, it's a blessing for us um, as much as there are difficulties that we get to take this time off. And that's not to diminish, like obviously if you lost sure. your job, that's, that's mm -hmm. a difficulty. Um, but, you know, it's always good to see the bright side as well, to see the positive as well. So, uh, walaikum assalam to everyone who has joined us. If you have any questions, you can ask at any time. We're going to kind of try to go back to some of the questions we spoke about last week mm -hmm. and see if we can explore it any further, if we have any further ideas. Um, so, let me quickly say assalamualaikum to Amira, Sajda. Anza and yes, <laughs> okay, alhamdulillah. So alaikum to you all. If you're here, then feel free to you know let us know in the chat. Also, assalamualaikum to Hawa. Um, so we know that there are some more of you here. So if you're here, we'd love to hear from you. Give your salam. Say hello. How's your Ramadan doing? How is it different for you this Ramadan with the COVID crisis? Uh, we would love to know. So. Uh, there were a couple of topics that we um, spoke about last week. I know that one of them was, and we'll try to revisit a couple of them. And again, if you have questions, then we would love to get to those as well. Um, so one was about keeping, essentially keeping the faith as we put it in the video title. And so a mother, she was dealing with her son who was having um, difficulties with, with his faith or that's how he was presenting it. Um, I wanna cautiously say, because sometimes we don't know, someone can present something as one thing, but underneath it, it could be something else. But that's what he was presenting that he did not want to be Muslim anymore. And he had a fellow Muslim friend who also said he did not want to be a Muslim anymore. And so how do you deal with that as a mother? And one of the things that we said is that it's really important to try to make Islam a positive experience for your son. So that was something that we touched on that we felt was really important. Um, often then for us as Muslims, sometimes, I shouldn't say often, but sometimes we can get so caught up, caught up on the rules that we forget about the lighter, I don't even wanna say the lighter side of Islam, but uh, maybe that's appropriate today, I'm not sure. 
but um, not everything is so heavy. Even Alhamdulillah, Ramadan is the month of Quran. Mm -hmm. And reading recently about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talking about he gave us enjoyment in this life, uh, non-believers and believers, and enjoyment will exclusively be for believers in the next life. So we're not meant to, for every moment, to be misery, you know. Um, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling us, enjoy your life here, but do the right things. And um, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, in guiding us, he's guiding us to what is right and appropriate for us and what will give us the best life. I think that's something we should remember as well, that it's not whether it's Salah or fasting or Hajj, it's not a punishment. It's a means for us to have the best quality of life. And that doesn't mean it's easy, but we should at least understand the, the framing of it. Yeah, I agree. Um, I know for me, and I'm sure for others that looking forward to fasting um, is a very exciting time, fasting during the month of Ramadan, because it also helps you to um, hone in on the fact that, you know, you're about to discipline yourself even more, right? Outside of the times that you would typically get up in the morning and, you know, perform some that, and then you, you know, you come down and you, you eat breakfast and then maybe two or three hours or four hours from then you're eating a snack or you're eating this and you're just constantly feeding the body. Um, but not taking time to relax, to read, to get into some spirituality, to just really enjoy that time and realize that yes, we do have discipline, right? So we exercise that discipline and we enjoy looking forward to reading Quran, to discussing with family, to being with family, to just enjoy getting up um, sometimes 3, 3.30 in the morning, uh, you know, to make sure that you, you know, get ready and fix your meals and have a meal. Like, you know, typically we have brunch on Sunday, so we would have, you know, a brunch on, uh, on Sundays when my husband is home. Um, you know, basically uh, the times that he's not working, right? We mm -hmm. try to do that. Um, and then all of us, Typically, and, and that's just one thing for me, my personal thing is during Ramadan, is not to overeat, right? You know, some people after they, when it's time to break fast, it's like they're having a lot of food until the point, like maybe an hour or so after you're about to fall asleep and mm. not really enjoying the meal. And I think we just need to caution ourselves. This Ramadan is not about getting through with fasting and then, you know, gouging ourselves with a whole bunch of food. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, I think we have to carry that discipline through. Uh, and the same thing, of course, getting up in the morning uh, to have our meal. Mm -hmm. You don't need to be eating a whole lot of food in order to say, oh, my God, I'm going to be starving throughout, throughout the day. Because you would be surprised that, you know, the, the small meals that you eat and your, your intentions, you actually can make it through the day just fine. You know, you're more relaxed, you read, you do activity, you, you, you get busy, and that time will go so fast. I know this week, and I'll, I'll just segue off from this, but um, this week I, I actually got up for Sahur, but I had some ice cold water and I had a cup of yogurt with some granola in it, right? And it was fine. I just didn't feel like eating a whole lot of anything. 
Um, and alhamdulillah, my fast was great. I did that twice during the week. And um, I'm really um, glad that I did that. Uh, I mean, I've been doing off and on for years is that I'm just not the person that will eat a lot in the morning. I just need something a little bit and then, you know, eat a nice cup of hot water or some tea, yogurt, a piece of fruit or a boiled egg or something like that. Not a whole lot of stuff in my system because I want to be able to continue to be energized throughout the day and do what I need to do and not focus on you know, hunger or anything like that. But that's just me, you know. Um, I, did, I know that folks, and of course, during this COVID, we, no one's going to the masjid to um, to have iftar, mm -hmm. right? But you're home, so, you know, you can certainly eat small portions of, of food and not overindulge yourself. But I do know that during normal times when, when you know, people just go to the master iftar and they just like, eat like there's no tomorrow. I don't, I personally don't think that's the purpose of breaking your fast, right? It's obviously mm -hmm. to enjoy the company of others, but to take a small portion of what is being served as a community and enjoy, but then just enjoy the company of others uh, in terms of reading and praying and so forth. But that's just my thing. I think it's worked for me. I, I'm just not into, you know, trying to eat everything that I see, mm -hmm. you know, folks have, have made appreciate yeah. it, but this, it's not necessary. Yeah. I, I think that that's valuable for a lot of people to think of. Let me just uh, read how his comments or how is that been quite been quiet for me because I'm abroad with my family, but alhamdulillah, it's not as bad as I thought it would be. Mm -hmm. That's good. Mashallah. Yeah, mashallah. So what are you doing? Are you trying to, create any traditions or practices for yourself to try and make it special? Or is there anything that you're doing in particular that has made it not as bad as you thought it might be? So we would love to know, inshallah. And I, I think that's valuable. Um, for me, it really, I would say that one, one aspect that's really valuable about what you're saying is that Ramadan is not the month of food, right? We know that, especially in Middle Eastern countries, where it's just easier to sort of um, research and survey these sort of things, mm -hmm. that um, more people will end up in the hospital because of overeating. You know, people, I don't know, when I was in Jordan, which was a very sort of funny thing to me, when I was in Jordan, um, like before Ramadan, excuse me, like an hour before iftar, the supermarkets were crowded, people's mm -hmm. grocery carts were stacked which is kind of ironic because I just wonder, is that just psychological? Or are people really last minute cooking? If I kind of doubt it, I think it might be more so psychological. Um, so for sure, it's not the month of food. I think the only thing I would say that, that people should consider though, if you have a family, um, especially if you have younger children, I just, I'll just say non-adult children, so teenager and mm -hmm. under, uh, I think there is something that's good and nice if you can make it as special as possible. So sure. having a nice support, mm -hmm. having a nice iftar so that people know that they're waking up and they're looking forward at 3.30 in the morning to right. eating. So I think there is good in it. You don't want to focus on the food to the point that you're overstuffed. Right. But if you're focusing on the food as a 
pathway to do something beneficial. So to make the experience nice for um, your family, then that that is a really good tradition. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and everyone is different. So people will want, again, we, of course, no one is gonna promote stuff in your face, but um, some people may want to have a full breakfast at Savoir, some people mm-hmm. may want something light. I think you're absolutely right there that the human body, Alistia Panadella has made it so that in terms of need, you know, we really don't need a lot of food. And we may want a lot of food, we may enjoy the food that we eat, but just in terms of a physiological need, Alessia Panatella has definitely made it so that our bodies can survive without um, mm-hmm. eating too much. It can go without, um, even if, it's a funny thing too, because people will, you know, have different plans to, you know, not be dehydrated mm-hmm. during the day or not be hungry during the day and every individual is different. So if you need to do that, then but I do feel like in general, there's not much you can do to make it so that a 16 plus hour fast has no effect. At some point in the day, you're probably going to feel hungry. At some point Mm -hmm. in the day, you're probably going to be thirsty. I don't think if you have, you know, two gallons of water at Sahur, you're never going to be thirsty during the day. I just, Mm -hmm. I just don't feel like that's how the body works um or even i don't know some people can get really specific about i have to make sure i still get enough protein so let me make sure i have this and that for support Mm -hmm. that's fine if you want to do that but i do believe that we all probably personally observe that ramadan teaches us we really just don't need as much as we think we do on an everyday basis um so how are you said i set up a daily ramadan plan and try to stick to it and i have a lot of time to be mindful since i'm alone mm. Nina, that's wonderful yeah. that's really yeah. great uh, you know i'm glad you mentioned that because obviously there's a difference now that you know i'm, I'm sort of like emptiness um you know in terms of my my children being older but definitely when you guys were younger you know your dad and i would get up and make a meal and you know mm-hmm. have all you know, the whole nine yards mm-hmm. available for you all to get up and eat. And we use that time to have just a great um, sahur. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so anything from oatmeal, you know, to plant in porridge, to eggs, to this, that, whatever you thought every day. So, yeah, mm-hmm. it was a special time. And you're absolutely correct. When you have children at home, you want them to understand that Ramadan is a special time right? It's not just a a time because children may look at it differently, right? It's like, why am I starving myself? (laughs) You know, when I can eat, um, why do I have to do this? Why do I have to do that? So again, we just have to be careful how we um, formulate our messaging, right? To children, when you speak to them about Ramadan, they don't quite understand what it's about. So again, you know, it is important that we make it a joyous event Okay, um, until they're capable to understand the seriousness and the meaning behind it. So, yeah, everything goes in stages depending on, you know, the child's age, you know, the teenagers begin to come into their own, they begin to understand, you know, and of course they begin to understand by you, we educating them the importance of Ramadan, right? So we all go through stages with this. Um, so there are different things that are applicable to 
going through Ramadan and fasting and the beauty of fasting. So for children, yes. Teenagers, yes. You want to make sure that they understand that this is something to look forward to. Because again, living in the society that we're living in, for them, it's like, you know, others are enjoying themselves all the time. That is their perception. And why can't they do the same? So family values, as they say, so important that you celebrate around what it is you believe and what it is you practice and not make it this very strict um, type of event or to, to have your home overly strict that the child does not understand why he or she is doing it. So I think those are some of the things we need to keep in mind when we go through this month of Ramadan, particularly with our children and our teenagers, that this is a joyous event. This is something that is asked of us, that I'm sorry, for us to do um, for, for Allah so that we can, again, inshallah, reap the benefits of what it is we're doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so another topic that well, I don't know if you wanted to say anything specifically about or anything further, specifically about the mom dealing with her son who said he didn't want to be Muslim, if you had anything. Well, I think um, last week, as we said, just to go over briefly, and you know, many folks may be dealing with this as well, is that, yeah, when children express um, certain things that they really don't understand, it is not for us to get upset with them, right? Because we don't know why they're saying what they're saying. We don't know what experiences they've had uh, with their friends or who is influencing them mm -hmm. um, that they would say certain things. So mm -hmm. I think this is a time when we are tested, uh, particularly in terms of knowledge and patience, that we are to have conversations with our children, with our, you know, our teenagers in particular, and and of course the younger ones who are intelligent to understand there's something going on, but they don't know exactly what's going on. Then they may feel that they're not benefiting or they're not enjoying themselves. And I think we touched on the fact that you know we also need to be very careful. Is that the way we present Islam to our children or to community at large? It cannot be or, or perceived as though that we're enslaved in some way. Mm -hmm. You know, we are in, you know, we don't know how to have fun. We don't enjoy ourselves. We're like always on this, you know, do this, do that. You know, and it's funny because um, I know several years ago, there was this mom, a couple of moms that were extremely strict with their children, particularly their girls. Mm -hmm. They wanted them to cover, you know, they wanted them to cover their face mm -hmm. and all. And these children ended up rebelling mm -hmm. in the worst way, mm -hmm. in the worst way. You you really could not believe that this was a child that was coming out of a Muslim home, totally turned their backs against Islam mm -hmm. because they were so, you know, the parents, again, I don't know, but, but again, coming out and knowing about the situation, it just seemed like the strictness was just like so overbearing. Mm. I mean, and we have to understand that the way we choose to um, understand and practice our deen may not necessarily, it may not seem that way to our children. And we do have to be careful how we teach them and how we come across to them in terms of the knowledge that we're sharing with them and not make it seem as though like we're here to be punished. Right. 
And sometimes it seems that way to a lot of teenagers, particularly, mm -hmm. and particularly our girls, where you know they're like, okay, now my mom wants me to cover my face. I have to mm -hmm. wear black all the time. Like, what's going on? Why can't I buy a shirt that has a color? Like, you know, we have to be sensible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As long as they are doing the things that are within the contents of you know clothing, modesty, and so forth. Some of these other things that we practice, and again, this is my opinion, some of these other things we practice and take from other cultures, we have to be very, very careful. Because if you're living in that culture, right, of course you're going to feel more comfortable if you're covering your face and you're wearing, you know, the buy all the time and, you, you know, you're not allowed to, well, not allowed. I mean, obviously people dress and they dress up on their, um, their garments, but also we want to be... Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's the culture. Oh, weird, right. The culture, the culture norms is different than if you were here. Mm -hmm. And sometimes your children don't understand this, that you are, in some cases, adapting other cultures in terms of their, their dress code, mm -hmm. right? Because we know there are Muslims all over the world. Muslims all over the world don't dress the same way, yeah. right? And there is flexibility to dress in different colors, different um, styles, um, so I'm just saying, let's be careful how we present ourselves and not um, present Islam as being a burden, something that is so strict that you can't enjoy yourself and um, and your children see you in a light of, wow, my parents are Muslims, they, they, they enjoy themselves, they have a good time, you know, um, they take us places, we have conversations. And things like that and this religion does not seem to be a burden to me mm. so you know those are just some of the things that i've seen yeah i think i'm oh, sorry no, no no go ahead please yeah no i think that's all really really valuable and i do strongly believe you have to always we don't want to be morally relevant uh, sorry relative no, but okay. um i think there is room for relativity in that what is the, we have to sort of realize the culture that we are in, that we are in. Mm -hmm. To fully cover your body and to wear hijab is going above and beyond in this culture, it is already making you stick out in this culture. Right. If you do that in Jordan, that's pretty much, you know, oh. the, the average way. A few people don't cover, a few people cover their face and as well as hijab and abaya, but it's the average to dress like how I'm dressing essentially. How, how we're both dressing. Um, but in America, where the norm is to wear short shorts and to wear a tank top and to do all that, and you want your child to wear a baya, even just a baya and hijab all the time, you're sort of forcing them to go on the extreme edges, right? Because even just to wear more regular clothes and to be fully dressed and to wear hijab, that is like, above and beyond. So you want them to go even further than above and beyond and sort of really stick out like a sore thumb. And wearing a cob that's just really over the top, um, especially since it's not an obligation, you know, according to most scholars. So I think there has to be room for, you know, how a kid will usually say, well, my friends get to do X, Y, Z. No, you don't want your kid to feel like they have to do everything their friends do. But I think you do have to consider their social context. Mm -hmm. If you are telling them be different from everyone else, 
especially before they have cultivated their own faith for themselves mm -hmm. and their own depths of belief and their own pathway, you're doing them more harm than good, you know, in, in my opinion. I think you were saying, you know, essentially the same thing that you really, you, you have to consider that, especially if you're sending them to public school, they have non-Muslim friends, you really have to understand the context of how difficult it already is just to wear the hijab. Um, so, so trying to make them, force them to go above and beyond that, it's your prerogative, but you really have to pay attention. How is that affecting my child? How is that affecting their ability to be social? Yeah. And that's also that some people can't. You know, I knew people in college who wore a bayah and hijab all the time. I'm sure it's possible. Um, but at a younger age, I think when you so desperately want to be accepted, while you don't give into that completely, I think there's room for people to say, yeah, I, I don't want to be the odd man out all the time. I don't want to be so completely different from everyone else around me. Um, and, you know, I, I think for sure that we should realize I mean, social conduct is so important. So if he has friends that are, well, let's just say someone in general, if they have friends who are smoking and dating and et cetera, and all these haram things, and then yeah. you tell them they can't do any of that, that's going to be really difficult. Now they can't do any of that, but you have to try as the parent of a child that's still young, you have to try to cultivate a circle so that they have a circle of friends where they can do the majority of things with them. Everyone wants to go out and get ice cream. Everyone wants to go out and to the movies or skating. They can do all of that. Okay, these two friends, they want to go on a double date. Okay, well, you don't date. So that's one thing compared mm -hmm. to all the many things that they can do, you know? And if you look at it from the child's perspective, you can understand how, and the two parents, there could be allowing the same thing, but the social contact right. can make one kid feel like they are very restricted and the other kid feel like, they have a great life. They can do whatever they want for the for the most part, you know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so so that's crucial. If you as a parent see that they're going down the wrong path, um, you may have to intercede in that in some way and um, find them better friends. And it, it doesn't have to be dramatic, you know. As we said in the last podcast, you don't have to say, you know, stop talking to X Y Z. But it can be that you put them in a program so that they naturally meet friends that are um, hopefully a better, well, you, you have to check out the program, right? And see who's there. But put, putting them in a situation where they will be able to meet people who will be a better influence on them, um, allowing them or um, maybe cultivating an environment in the household where they spend less time online or less time on their cell phone. So they naturally aren't spending so much time with those who maybe are, are um, bad influences on them. Mm -hmm. So you, you have to take some initiative. And the honest truth is that if you're sending them to public school, you also have to realize there is a level of control that you don't have. Right. So how do you also cultivate in them internally a love for Islam? Mm -hmm. um, and we spoke about being creative because that's not gonna be a one size fits all. You have to know your child and what they like um, and what you can do to cultivate that inside of them so that as much as you want to change the environment and hopefully you can to some degree so that you can also trust them to 
be in the outside world and make the best decisions. So how, how do you cultivate that for them? You're going to have to figure that out. Um, and this just came to mind, but even if you want to, it's a very simple thing, but like watching YouTube videos and finding the people that you see, oh, okay, he's actually listening to this one, right? And you, you kind of, ha- you can't force him in the sense of right. you can't say, you know, go to your room and go listen to Shake So-and-so. Right. No, do it as a family. You're watching it. You ask him to come and join you. Uh-huh. Um, and this is like for kids, maybe sort of 12 and up, maybe 12 and under you can force them, but 12 and up, you know, try to cultivate it as a family and say, hey, you know, let's watch so-and-so. And, you know, try to pay attention and see the things that he's responding to. And there's a whole, you know, maybe we'll think about it and actually give a whole list the next time, but I'm sure there's a whole list you could come up with of things that he would enjoy and would bring him closer to the religion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One final thing I'll mention on this is, you know, I'm sure we've all had any different experiences of different shayu, different um, sheikhs that, you heard one sheikh and it just completely turned you off and you heard another sheikh and you're like, I want to learn more. Different personalities can attract us to Islam more or less if we're just being honest because we're human beings, right? Mm-hmm. So you hear one sheikh and you can really relate to them and they're really saying things that make sense to you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, you can lean more towards that. And before you know it, you're listening to everything the sheikh as to offer, and there are other shakes that, you know, you find frightening or you're like, oh my God, what is this thing? You know, I don't want to hear any of this anymore. So it's just about different pathways for the same goal. And if you're creative and thoughtful, then you can definitely figure that out and and help your son um, to cultivate his faith, inshallah. Yeah, that's great. And I think last time we mentioned um, mentorship, right? How, Mm. How mentorship was so important. Um, whether it's a boy or a girl, right? Uh, getting getting a, a, a big brother or a big sister in a community, a teenager who's doing some great work or teenagers who are doing great work um, and ask that, that individual to be a mentor to your son, your daughter, in addition to what you're trying to create at home uh, as parents. Um, but again, as you well know, you can tell a child um, the same thing over and over again, and somehow it's difficult for them to grasp what you're saying. Mm-hmm. But let a teenager their age say the same thing, and it's like, oh, this aha moment, man, that makes sense to me. But it's just a natural human thing that happens. Um, so if you find someone in the community, in the masjid, that is a good mentor, you see and hear this individual or young individuals that are doing something great, maybe you want to steer that young person in that direction, you know, to get to find out about this individual or individuals. What are they doing? How are they doing it? How is it that they're doing it and they seem to love Islam as well? Like what actually was put in place in order for them to do that? And usually these young people are very willing to share and mentor other um, other young folks to, you know, bring them under their wings to, to help them to have someone to talk to in addition to you being available, speaking to your child. And we also know that with children, and we all have experienced this from time to time, you know, your parents may say, oh, you can tell me anything. Um, of course, and the, parents, the parent is coming from a genuine place. 
But oftentimes there's a sense of judgment behind that as well. It's like, what are you up to now? But if they can also talk to a teenager um, that they feel comfortable with for guidance and, and for some type of assistance, don't get upset. Don't, don't say, oh, you're talking to so-and-so. Why aren't you talking to me about that? But I think the thing is that once we, if you see that they're, they're actually um, clinging on to someone who is of their age or a little older and, and they're a positive mentor, maybe you might want to have a conversation with that individual and say, listen, uh, I really do appreciate you um, helping and assisting. You know, if there's anything that's going on with him or her, please let me know, mm -hmm. right, as the parent, because ultimately you make the decisions. But it's good for them to have someone that they can relate to. Not often your children will be coming to you, um, sharing their private thoughts with you. Those of us who are parents um, know this. And sometimes you do feel left out and you try to figure out, well, why didn't that child come and tell me? But again, you know, they do have their privacy moments as well, and we shouldn't entitle them to do that. But I think engaging them in conversations, uh, find out how they're doing, like take them to lunch, take them to dinner. You know, when you're home, you just you can't have a conversation with someone while the TV's on, right? Everyone likes food. So maybe you might wanna prepare something where you guys have like a great meal together and talk about what's going on in school, talk about their friends and even share some of your experiences when you were a child. What are some of the things that you experienced? So that they can eventually see that there's a connection between what you experience and what they're experiencing. Sometimes it is. Sometimes you may not have had such a great childhood, but I think that's also important for you to share with your child. If in fact your child is perceiving that you've had such a great um, childhood, without any problems and, and really can't relate. I think sometimes your children would be really, really appreciative of you sharing some of the experiences that you had growing up as a child, whether it's good or bad. Obviously, there are certain things that maybe, you, you know, you might have experienced some horrific things. You have to decide which ones you think would help this child understand um, where you're coming from, what was your struggles. Everybody likes to hear a good story that, you know, where a struggle or maybe they, they didn't think that that person would have experienced those things, but here's a person now before you and they turned out just fine, right? And they can admit that they've had struggles in life, but they help. Um, they were helped by others who cared about them. They themselves had the vision to, you know, hang on to Allah's mercy, to ask for guidance, to take them out of their situation. And Allah was, you know, graceful and made that happen for them um, because no one, no one gets to a certain place by themselves. We all have to help each other. So I think it's always important that we share stories of ourselves with our children, whether they're good or bad, you know, and of course things are age appropriate, right? So you want to make sure that you want to Think about the things that you're going to say. You're never just going to, you know, do a blah conversation with them and like, oh my God, did mom, dad just say that to me? Like, I didn't need to get, hear all that information. <laughs> but again, you want to you engage the conversation, engage the conversation, and then share some things with them so they understand where you're coming from, mm -hmm. you know? 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. So if you have any, yeah, I think that that's having a really important advice. If anyone has any questions, then you can type them in, inshallah, maybe everyone's fine because it's Ramadan and so your <laughs> all your problems <laughs> have gone away. <laughs> but um, inshallah, if you do have any questions, then let us know. So I do have one long question. We will, I think I may, hmm. okay. Should we go for the long question? Or... Or maybe we can do it in parts. Yeah, okay. This is a tough one. All right. <laughs> Let's try and Let's start. Try it. Okay. Waalaikumsalam to this wonderful person. Um, okay. All right. I got to know a man for marriage last year. My parents became involved after a few days but issues with distance and paperwork delayed our meeting. We spoke for about a year and met up just once. He met my parents once. Members of his family spoke to mine numerous times on the phone. Everyone was happy and the date for the nikah was set. I put together my marriage contract after consulting my parents and sent it to him. It was at this point the man a surgeon who had previously encouraged me to be open and frank about my request and who had and who, and who already had a failed engagement suggested that the families quote unquote negotiate my maha he came back to me with an offer less than half of what i offered he raised no issues with any other terms of my contract our father spoke on the phone after this, it was during, I'm smiling because this is very long, we're not even halfway through. <laughs> Our father spoke on the phone after this. It was during this telephone conversation that his father made some brazen remarks. He made numerous comments slash jabs, suggesting he was perhaps envious of my father's financial situation and told my father that his own daughters co cost him more than his sons to marry off, okay? He also, and I should know, I found this out from a Bengali that some, in some cultures that are Muslim cultures, but it's not a part of Islam, there are some cultures where they pay the mahar to the man. The family pays the mahar mm -hmm. to the man. Yes. So I don't know if that's her culture, mm -hmm. but uh, not Islamic so, at all, mm -hmm. but, this is what happens. I don't know if that's what that is relating to. Um, okay. After this conversation, okay. He also told my dad that he had not been, if it had not been for visa issues, he would have sent his son a girl from our homeland to marry. Okay. So clearly this is, these are Muslims who are also from a Muslim culture. Um, he poked fun at my suggestion that I would require a small but regular sum of maintenance or that I may decide to stay at home and not work. After the conversation, my father, so if you want to comment at any point, just let me know. Mm -hmm. 
After the conversation, my father told me that he that it was up to me what I decided to do, but his advice would be to end things with the man. I spoke to the man and informed him of our father's suggestion, and he told me that he would take some time to speak to his family and get back to him. At this point, I would have happily waited for him had he requested more time to get the mahar together, despite what my father advised, and believe that the man shown or showed he was independent and did not share his father's views and accepted the mahar amount at this stage. My parents would have come to accept him again. The man took two days, after which he got back to my message, telling me that he cannot proceed with the nikah, that his family had advised him against it, that my mahar was unreasonably high, but also that he now thought my other requests were also unreasonable. So let me take a moment to read their requests and then yeah, finish the requests. Yeah. Okay, she wanted the marriage to be registered as a legal marriage. She wants the husband to obtain her permission if he wants a second wife. I'll read this word for word. The wife is able to leave the marital home as long as it does not impede on her fulfilling her marital duties without first needing to obtain permission from the husband but informing him of her intentions. So general permission to leave the home uh, without it as long as it doesn't uh, interfere with her duties. The husband is obliged to provide maintenance based on his means without being prompted. So this will take form in a regular allowance and responsible for all maintenance of the home. The wife has the wife, excuse me, the wife has the right to work if she wants, as long as it doesn't impede her fulfilling her marital duties and working will not deprive her of right for maintenance. Each party has equal power to initiate divorce to the end of the Islamic marriage. The husband will remain working. Okay, well, that's a more specific thing. So, okay. Her mahar request is $10,000. And let's see. $10,000 to be paid up front, I believe. And then there's another amount of gold to be paid in five years. Mm. Now, we should remember this person that she was looking to marry was a surgeon. Okay, so let's finish this up. Um, and to go back to the point, so he wanted to split that in half. Okay. Um, I'm sorry. He wants, instead of 10000 he wants to give 5000 mm -hmm. Okay. Okay, so then he took the two days to think about her request and came back to say that he thought the amount was unreasonable and that he then thought her other requests were also unreasonable. Mm. Okay, so we'll read that part again. The man took two days after which he got back to my message telling me that he cannot proceed with the nikah 
that his family has advised against it, that my mahar was unreasonably high, but also that he now thought my other requests were unreasonable. So I haven't heard from him since. It was the first time an expression of interest or proposal got to the point of devising a contract. So I was inexperienced and led by my parents who came from very traditional families when it came to setting the mahar amount. I would have happily settled for a mahar of half of what I asked, but everyone in my family seemed to have an opinion and what's done is done now. Since this incident, whenever I speak to a marriage prospect, maintenance and mahar are one of the first things I ask about. Mm -hmm. I get the impression, however, that no men will be able or prepared to meet my requests slash family's expectations, and I feel incredibly disheartened. Mm -hmm. Do you have any advice about this matter? Were my requests unreasonable? Is my family expecting too much? Mm. Okay. You can start. I'm sorry. All right. right. So let me first say that I don't think it's ever appropriate to say that any particular request is is unreasonable in and of itself. There's no absolute. If you're marrying the, you know, Emir of Qatar and you... Of Qatar, I think they call it Emirs, mm-hmm. and you ask for ten thousand dollars. That's nothing. It's a drop in the bucket. If you ask for a hundred thousand dollars, that's probably you could maybe you could ask a million. I don't know, but that would be different than asking a man who is a construction worker for a hundred thousand dollars, right? So it is. There's no objective answer to say yes, absolutely one particular amount is too much. You can't say that. It depends who you're talking to. Um, and so this man was a surgeon. Is $10,000 a lot to ask? I honestly, I don't know. I don't know. Of course, surgeon, you immediately think that's someone who makes a good amount of money. I don't know exactly how much money this person is making. I think the complicated thing, I think, in your scenario when it comes to whether it's too much or not, is that you would have been happy with half, but your family wanted the 10000 That is, so you're thinking about two sort of things. So really it becomes, do you, the, the situation is done, right? But in retrospect, did you want to marry the man enough that you would have been okay outside of your family with, um, you know, uh, working out another price? Um, Or would you rather listen to your family and fulfill their expectations? And I know these things get complicated in other cultures. You know, I'm a Westerner. Of course, we care about what our parents think when it comes to marriage and want their approval and all of that. But most Western parents aren't going to be that hands-on if you want to take, there are going to be limits, right? But if right. you want to take $2,000 and your parents think, well, you should really take 5000 but okay. That, that's how most Western Muslim parents would be. They're not going to force you to take you know, a large amount. Um, so that is the, that's sort of the first thing that needs to be separated. Which one do you care about more? And maybe in the end, you know, it's over now. So it wasn't meant to be. Maybe in the end you feel like, no, nah, he wasn't really worth it actually. Uh, but maybe you meet someone one day that you do think is a really great person. And so you have this $10,000 amount 
and you want to rethink it because they are not able to do it or um, not able to do it at that time or you're okay with mm-hmm. taking part of it and deferring the rest, it's really, I feel like it's going to be situation-based on how do you feel about this man. Now, at the same time, you don't want the man to, you don't want anyone to get over on you. You don't mm-hmm. want the man to say, you don't want to be so in love or like the man so much that he can say, you know what, how about no mahar or I'm just going to give you a hundred dollars. No, it, it should be an amount that, in my opinion, it should be an amount that is worth something for the man that right. he had to put some kind of effort. effort. Yeah, exactly. Some kind of effort into give you. Mm-hmm. So I think there is value in saying you don't want it to be too easy because I think that sort of sets the stage for um, not such a great dynamic, but you don't, if you want to marry the guy, I don't think you want to make it insurmountable either. Those are just my initial thoughts. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I would start off by saying, um, number one, when we are looking to get a partner, right? It's so important that we vet that partner, right? So we know, what, are, what their circumstances are, as mm-hmm. you said, um, their affordability. Uh, and this is something that, that we tend not to pay attention to as much. And I would also like to say that, you know, I'm sure your, your parents' intentions are pure, inshallah, that they were looking out for your best interests. Because I think they have an idea better than you at this point her parents, um, you think? Her parents, okay. yeah, better better than you at this point as to um, what you should receive as their daughter, mm. right? So your parents value you, uh, so they're obviously going to look out for your best interests, and they're coming from a tradition where I think they know the value of what a surgeon would be making, mm. right? So I think that their request was not unreasonable, um, but the fact is that if he is going to negotiate with you, at the end of the day, you're the one that has to be satisfied with what the end result is, mm-hmm. right? Um, whether or not you were willing to accept the 5,000, and again, this is lessons learned, okay? Mm-hmm. Inshallah, Allah will present someone better uh, in quality and, and, and um in finances that that can actually afford what it is you're asking for. But I think in negotiating uh, these matters before we get into a relationship is extremely important because you want to be able to express yourself um, in a relationship, right? Sometimes you have to look between the lines as to see what is going on. And sometimes if someone is truly interested in you, they will find a way to have a conversation with you to find reason. So he may well have had the $10,000, but did not approach it in a way that would make it um, comfortable for you. Instead of saying, no, I'll I'll give you half, well, maybe have a conversation with you saying, okay, uh, I will certainly consider giving you half, but let's let's work out a plan where I can give you maybe $2,000 in a couple of months and whatever until I can get uh, that amount and honor your request. Mm. Because at the end of the day, it is the woman, if she does not accept your request, the husband's request, 
or, or he does not accept your request, excuse me, mm -hmm. um, then you're the one that has to accept it or not and negotiate it if you so choose. Um, I don't think people should compromise on their dowry requests. Mm. Um, and the only reason I'm saying that, it's not to say that you should not negotiate it, right? Because some people will get married, maybe your husband can give you $500 if that's what you request, or you request a diamond ring, or you request a car. You intelligently have to look to see what his means, what his means are. Mm -hmm. And if you know that he can afford these things, but he is trying to act as though he can't afford it, mm. then you know you want you also want to be you also want to pay interest to some of the signs that you're seeing ahead yeah. of time, right? Um, but yes, you can negotiate these things. You certainly can um, ask for it in portions um, and whatever else that you are requesting. But certainly not to outright say that what you're requesting is unreasonable because what does he know about? your request being unreasonable or not. It really is for you as a woman to decide whether your request is reasonable or not. It's not for you to present it to the man who is trying to um, engage you as his wife, for him to now tell you that what you're requesting is unreasonable. Mm. Um, again, that's a sign that you are, you know, that you need to pay attention to. So I understand what you're saying. I understand the fact that you you feel that you may have missed an opportunity, but I think it's a learning lesson for you that the next time that you go to, um, or someone is interested in you or you're interested in each other for marriage, definitely these things need to be talked about seriously before you get to the point of saying, okay, you know, it's time for you to, to pay, to, you know, give me a list of things that you, um, would like to have and let's talk about it because by the time you get into that relationship you don't want to be talking about it you don't want to be reminding your husband he has to pay your finish paying your diary mm -hmm. i mean that can that can be you know quite disturbing and and sometimes people forget that oh were you actually serious mm -hmm. you don't expect me to give you ten thousand dollars do you well yes i do i expect mm -hmm. for you to keep your promise right um so yeah, you these things are negotiable. This is why you know we had a we had a podcast and, and we talked about this matter in length, in terms of vetting um, your spouse before you actually decide to marry that person. And finances is a very um, hard discussion for a lot of people that want to go into a relationship, um, but they figure you know hey figure it out on the way. Well, I guess it depends on the age that you are. Right and the level of maturity that you're that you're at at that time, then you may want to spend time figuring it out too. But at the end of the day, it's always as I've said, part of your marriage is really is a business, and you have to look at it sometimes in that regard of communicating. This is what I I am requesting, and I'd like for us to talk about it. Can you afford to do this? Can you not afford to do that? Um, where do you see yourself in five years and what is your career? Are you hopping and jumping from one job to another? Um, is vending going to be the thing for, for you the rest of your life on the street corner? I don't know. People, some people may not have a problem with that. And again, I'm not putting on anybody's career choice, but I'm just picking out a, a couple of things. You know, if you met a brother in college and 
you know, he dropped out of college and um, he's not doing anything else with himself or, or don't intend mm -hmm. to go back to college. How do you feel about that? At the end of the day, you are going to be um, his wife and maybe inshallah, the mother of the children at some point. So where do you see yourself uh, in regards to how is your finance going to show up, right? If this person does not have the ability to make, have an earning, right? Mm -hmm. To have an earning, or may turn around and say, well, you know, you have a college degree and whatever, why don't you go out and work? But I expect for you to then come back and do all the maintenance and everything else at home, mm -hmm. but not show any initiative in terms of, you know, getting out there and making things happen. So for this young lady, I would say, yeah, you may see it as a loss right now, but Allah knows best because um, in some cultures, yes, of course, parents, and I think it's I think it's an admirable thing, you know, an admirable thing when parents get involved in helping to decide how their daughter uh, in particular will be valued and, and and protecting her interests because yeah. that's what it is. It's protecting your interests. Yeah. Right. So True. in our culture, in the Western culture, we've adapted a lot of a lot of Western ways that we really don't get involved uh in terms of asking some of these hard questions mm -hmm. that need to be asked. But we really need to practice some of those things uh in terms of asking those questions, getting involved in the brothers, you know, what what has his career been like what is he making like let me see i need to see your bank account you know somebody might say oh my god you want to see your bank of course because you might you might have nothing in the bank account you might have five hundred dollars and and again five hundred dollars is not anything to, to scoff about but five hundred dollars is not going to help you pay your rent right or like how are you making your money are you do you intend to go back to school you need to ask like how does he save and these are these are some important traditions that we need to make sure that we hold on to, because oftentimes people go out there and they get married, and no need to tell you what can happen, right? It's just to go on welfare, and they're married, okay, they're married, but you're on welfare, and and some people think that that's cool. I think it's actually disgusting. No, no, you know, please don't take this personally, but I think when you're looking at the responsibility for a Muslim family, Muslim couple, unless there is some dire strain, there's something going on where neither of you can make an income or he cannot make an income, and he decides, and he's going to be the maintainer, right? He's the emir of the family, but if he's not willing to go out and work and make sure that he has enough money to take care of his family. But then you have to now go and apply for social services, right? Welfare. Um, I'm sorry, the government is not supposed to be taking care of you. Your husband is. The mm -hmm. government is not the emir in your house. Your husband is. So therefore, if your husband has to work one job or two jobs or three jobs, guess what? He better be getting up in the morning and going to work or whatever shift it is to make sure that he gets a proper job and not put you in a situation where you now have to go and lie because that is what you're doing. Mm -hmm. You're lying on behalf of your husband in order to get money to take care of yourself. That should not happen. And I've, I've always, for me, that's a bad, that has always left a bad taste in my mouth, particularly when you have brothers out there who are not trying hard enough.
not trying hard enough. If you're mm-hmm. not, you should be going back to school. You should be looking for a better job in order to maintain your family. Okay. And particularly when it gets to, you know, a brother who wants uh, two or three wives and all of them are on welfare. Like what mm-hmm. the heck is going on? Mm-hmm. No, you can't be doing that. And, you know, some people are like, oh my gosh, she's throwing our business. And like, well, your business needs to be thrown in the garbage because <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, this is not what Islam is about. The man is the maintainer. If he's not maintaining you, then he needs to be maintaining, getting a job or getting a proper job in order to take care of you. And no sister should be going down to the welfare office lying that their husband is not around or they're single or whatever. And I know this might be hard for some of you to hear, but that's what's happening in many of our communities. Mm -hmm. And we need to stop it. We need to let our men be men, okay? Sometimes you have to push people into manhood. I said, no, 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 no. You know, if if you're not making the money to take care of me, then I guess we're not talking marriage right now. Right? Until such time that you can afford to actually take care of a wife, you're not ready to get married. So this is these are hard conversations for people to have. So don't allow yourself to be put in a situation where you are now lying in order to, to, to um, maintain yourself or maintain your children and your husband thinks it's okay uh, that he continues to have a job that really doesn't produce much. Now, if your brother's obviously doing what he's supposed to do, now you live within your means, right? You live within your means. If you're an educated woman, then you guys need to have that discussion. Then maybe you want to go back to school or help out part-time. But ultimately, as we said before, again, if women decide that they don't want to go to work, then the husband better understand that that is her right, right? So I digressed a little bit because I think it's, it's just important to have that conversation mm-hmm. for us to understand when we are getting ready to get married, it is important that we vet our mates to understand what are they bringing to the table? What are you going to be satisfied with in order to have a healthy marriage, a healthy relationship? So for this young lady, um, I don't, I don't see where, well, first of all, I should say, don't feel bad about it. Of course, you may, may have wanted to get married at that time. And, you know, he's a surgeon and maybe the whole idea of him being a surgeon was obviously a big deal and, you know, status and all of that stuff in society. But at the end of the day, um, your, your wants and your needs, obviously, they're two different things. But if that's what you needed in order to you know, seal this Mm -hmm. uh, relationship to move forward, then it should be respected. And I think it just opens the window to show you that, you know, if none of the things that you have presented to him, he thinks is not valuable or even to have further discussion with it, then, you know, Allah knows best. But I think even if he comes back into the picture or he responds to you, um, then you should have the courage to ask questions, why do you think my request was unreasonable? I'd like to hear from you mm-hmm. what it is. And maybe we can have a discussion about it because you may still have feelings for him. Um, and I'm not saying to shut the door on any of this, but I also need for you to understand you also need to be assertive, right? There's nothing wrong with being assertive, with being, and of course being assertive, but being respectful 
but your values are your values and no one should disregard your values. And there needs to be a conversation around that. Mm-hmm. And just to point out, so here in the US, the insertion makes between 280 to 530,000, 530 k uh, but they're in their country. 280,000, 280,000, are we saying? Yeah, 280,000. Right. Surgeon makes good money. Yeah. But in the country she specifically lives in, the mm-hmm. surgeon makes between 34 and 110 k which is a huge range. Of course. So we don't know. Um, oh, the surgeon is in her country? I'm sorry? The surgeon, is it in her country? Where is she from? She's not in the U.S. She's not? Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. So, of course, it's, there's a Western difference. Country, but not the US. But I think still you should have a conversation, right? Whether it's this gender, where is this brother or another brother, make sure that you are able to, to vocalize what it is you are requesting to have the opportunity to do so. And sometimes it takes you being assertive, right? So let's look back at, okay, so I think we're sort of in agreement that it's not necessarily um, the amount you ask for isn't necessarily mm-hmm. unreasonable. For one, I was basically saying that there is no absolute unreasonable, depends who you're marrying. And two, I think you're saying it's, it's not unreasonable, but also she should be, she should feel okay having that conversation. And earlier in the email, she actually says that, um, he offered her less than half, so he offered her 3,500. Mm. So it's tough to say, were the parents being too hard? I don't know, but as you said, you feel the parents um, are no best what, what the surgeon should be making. So um, but she wanted to know if the points of the contract mm-hmm. were unreasonable. So maybe we can go through two, and then I think maybe we'll end since, um, you know, if Tara will be soon. In. Yeah. Okay, so the other thing she mentioned is wanting to, well, that was a part of the contract. Mm-hmm. You know what, let me just quickly go back to the very end of her question. Um, okay, well, I, I made some notes sure. here. Mm-hmm. So she said she wanted her marriage to be registered. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right, so there's nothing wrong with that. I'm I'm not understanding, I guess, from, from his perspective, I guess you need to ask him, like, why wouldn't he want that? You know, it's mm-hmm. not, there's no right and wrong to it. Yeah. Right? In terms of, you know, people get married in the community. They, um, sometimes the imam gives them a certificate or sometimes people go and get married by the state mm-hmm. or the county or wherever they live. And that's fine. So there's nothing wrong with you having the marriage registered. I don't know what his intentions are. And obviously you don't as to why. So again, a conversation needs to be had as to why would he object to that? Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is about uh, needing to have permission to leave the home, mm-hmm. right? Um, yes. Or not wanting. Not, not, not having to have permission or to get permission in having order to leave the home. a blanket permission, essentially. Right. Yeah. Right. What mm-hmm. are your thoughts on that? <laughs> um, I mean, I think that's a great thing to have in a contract. But I would say, especially if either you're in a culture where women are expected to ask every time they leave the home, mm-hmm. and you know you don't want that, so you put it in, a, in your contract. Mm-hmm. Or if you're marrying someone and you're from two different cultures, 
Right. Because something I have definitely realized and learned um, from my own experience is that when we talk about or learn various fake rulings, every culture is going to, I won't say interpret, it's not interpreting, but they're going to realize that rule differently. Mm -hmm. And so what that means is that, okay, in a very strict sense, based on what I know, there could be a difference of opinion, in a very strict sense, a woman should get permission from her husband to leave the home. What does that mean though? Now, some people may read and say, well, it's very black and white, you need permission. Well, the way that that is lived is different from what the fic literally says. So for a very, um, you know, I think clear example is from one of my teachers in Jordan. And she says essentially like what the sister is asking for, that she has a blanket permission from her husband and he, he doesn't have any trust issues with her going wherever she goes, wherever she wants, essentially. And I think like most spouses, she would tell him where she's going, but she goes where she wants and she's back before sundown. And um, that was their agreement. And so it's going to play out in different circumstances. In America, I think if you're marrying the typical American man, it's not going to be an issue to go to the grocery store, to go to the cafe, to go to the bookstore. Now, in the even in the West, if you're going, if you want to go on a trip, mm -hmm. um, you probably are going to ask your spouse. I'll put that in quotes because in our culture, there's also a thing of how you ask, right? right. Because the cultural expectation is going to differ there too. Um a in the West, it is it essentially is asked. Okay, let's say a wife is going out to the grocery store. She tells her husband, "Hey, I'm going to the grocery store." If the husband says, "Oh, I was just about to take you out. I had a surprise. We were going to do blah blah blah," um, then she would probably cancel those plans to do you know that thing that he wanted to do. Or if he said, oh, you know, I I can't watch the kids because I was just about to go, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. It's gonna, it's more of a negotiation in our culture, but there's still that groundwork, that foundation of you respect your husband. So if there was an actual reason, if he said, for example, in this COVID thing, like, I really don't think you should go outside. There's no reason to, like, there's, you know, this COVID mm -hmm. thing going on. I, I'd rather you stay home. Then you would listen. And the respect would go both ways, yes. But as you were talking about earlier, there is this leadership that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given men. And that leadership means, yes, the, the ability to lead, but also the responsibility to his family. Um, so that there is that, uh, how can we put it? Because the respect is going both ways, but there's this ounce of whatever you want to call it, where you do recognize the husband, the father, the man of the family. Um, you do recognize his place in that and the respect level that you would have for him. So that ruling is going to play out differently for different people and people have different cultural expectations. So I, I say all of that to say that I don't know what I want to say. It's I think it's something that you should very blatantly talk about if you're concerned about it. I do think, however, if you're marrying of the same culture, you already know the expectations. Right. So either you are going 
you don't like them. So for example, and as I think I already mentioned, in her culture, it may be that women literally ask, can I go to the grocery store and then say yes or no? Mm -hmm. So maybe she doesn't like that and that's why she's writing it out. Um, yeah. Or it could be like in American culture, two Americans are getting married, you wouldn't even think to ask to go to the supermarket. Mm -hmm. But it, again, I, I think these things can become difficult because you may not think to ask, um, but you can marry someone who even if they're from the same culture individually, they may take that, um, their, I don't want to say interpretations, subhanAllah, the way that they believe the rules should be manifested mm. um, is going to be in a particular way that you as a woman may not like. So um, yeah, those are my, those are my thoughts on that. I think it's not that it's complicated. It's that the, the, this rule is clear, but it being clear is very different from how you actually express that in your life. And I think, unfortunately, people may feel like, well, it's clear. So she has to ask me every time she wants to step outside. Mm -hmm. Well, not really. You two can have an understanding that right. she doesn't have to do that. So, right. Yeah, I mean, um, you said it exactly uh, uh, correct. And culture plays a big role in this. Um, yeah, and we know that in American culture, um, I think because of the way we are, oftentimes you women, I mean, husband is confident that if his wife is saying that she's going somewhere, she's going somewhere, mm -hmm. okay? Or she may say, you know, hey, you know, I'm, I'm going over to her sister's house, I'm going to the grocery store, I'm going shopping, exactly the way I just said it, mm -hmm. right? And he'll be fine with it. Mm -hmm. Like he, there's, there's a trust level, there's no, you know, there's no disrespect. Um, mm -hmm. there, there's no intent to disrespect him by even saying it that way because it's understood that it's fine with him, right? Um, mm -hmm. I think in some cultures, there is still a trust level of women, women, mm -hmm. right? Having the ability to leave the home and, and do what they say they're going to do, or even if they divert a bit, like there, there mm -hmm. seems to be some type of trust. And again, it comes deeply within a culture. So that's why we say it's a little difficult to deal with at times. Um, I do then, want to just mention, sure. that I think that's important. Maybe we're going to mention this, sorry. Mm -hmm. But it's also, we should realize that alhamdulillah, we live in a pretty safe country, right? Mm -hmm. So the man also doesn't have to worry about something happening right. to his wife typically. So there right. may be legitimate reasons in another yeah. country that sure. a man, and, and also something I didn't know and realized when I was in Morocco, there are certain places here, for example, everyone goes to your cafe, men, mm -hmm. women, children, whatever. Mm -hmm. Their cafes are for men. Right. So you they have a cultural stigma that if you come into a cafe, especially the traditional one, the mm -hmm. ones in the malls, it's different, but mm -hmm. the traditional one, you come in there, they may actually think you're like a prostitute or something. Mm -hmm. You know, that that is their culture. That's their cultural right. stigma. So you can't be as free as a woman to go here and there because there are certain places that men go and if you go there you're categorized yeah. one way and yeah. there may be certain places that women go and men wouldn't go it's the, the whole culture is so much more gender segregated. yeah yeah i mean culture really plays a, a a heavy role in some of these in some of these decisions right so again it really is communicating with your partner 
what are some of the do's and don'ts, what are some of the okay things. And oftentimes it's not a big deal, but, but mm -hmm. it can be a big deal in the culture that you're coming from. So we do have to be attention to the culture that we're coming from. So the other question had to do with um, they should both have a right mm -hmm. to divorce, have permission to initiate have, it, to initiate divorce, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. So from an Islamic perspective, why don't we deal with that so we can start off? So, I mean, for one, I can say I think everything in a contract is really good or it, whether it should be in the contract or not, everyone can decide for themselves, but valuable at least to talk about. Right. Um, from an Islamic perspective, initiating divorce, yeah, you can put it in your contract and then you have that right. Um, if you don't, then essentially the woman has to go through other means to get a divorce. So whether that's a sheikh, imam, some sort of Islamic council, if you're in an Islamic country, go to the court, whereas the man would just verbally pronounce um, the divorce. If you put it in your contract that we both equally have the right to divorce, the woman can also, she would have the equal right to initiate it um, verbally. So that that's what she's asking for. Okay. Um, so I guess she was asking if that's unreasonable. You know, I'll say two things. I think one, that it's a very good idea to do it. Or maybe three things. One, it's a very good idea to do it. Two, unfortunately, I don't think you're going to get very many men who want to sign such a contract. Mm -hmm. Three, I will say that divorce for women, if you don't put that in your contract, um, you can still get a divorce. Like mm -hmm. one of my... There's certain conditions that has to be present in order mm -hmm. to request a divorce right well, and sometimes there's not depending on what's yeah going on. it's so there are different types of divorces so there's one kind of divorce that's almost like an annulment like yeah if you're not being taken care of then that marriage can just be um dissolved essentially and then there's another where you request a divorce for whatever reason and it may come down to you having to give back the dowry or something like that whatever the agreement right. is so um yeah, as, as one sheikh, uh, she put it very simply, <laughs> that women will come to her complaining, oh, you know, they can't get a divorce because there's been this idea that you can't get a divorce as a woman or it's so hard. And the first thing she'll say to them is, yes, you can. Mm -hmm. Yes, you can. Like, that, that's it. Yes, you can. Now now that you know you can, okay, do you actually want to right. hear the preparation? There are means to get a divorce as a woman you can put it in your contract like this i think it's wise to do um but if you don't you can always you get it you can still get a divorce, still get a divorce. Yeah. yeah and sometimes people don't know this so but i yeah. think for her based on the question that she's asking this um it could be that the culture is impacting her in another way Right yeah, in that way, yeah. so she wants to make sure that she True. is protected so there's nothing yeah. wrong with you asking that again if he's not in agreement then he's not in agreement and then you would have to make yeah. a decision as to what you want to do right yeah. and and i think it's also helpful us to us to understand i think we mentioned it before oftentimes we have different cultures that sort of like front itself as islam right mm -hmm. so there's certain things that they do in that culture that you grow up from tradition to tradition they're they're like oh well this is islam yeah and then when you really examine it you see that it's not islam it's really the culture, 
the culture has taken over. Um, some of the not necessary practices, but the culture is fronting as the religion. Mm -hmm. And sometimes people are like so confused, they don't understand the difference. Yeah. So that's why we say it's so important for you to read, your, read for yourself, educate yourself and see what the difference mm -hmm. is. Don't always take um, someone else's word that this is Islam, mm -hmm. right? Read the book, the Quran is there, Hadith is there, read for yourself, educate yourself. And you will see that clearly, oftentimes, these are traditions that have been kept and that has passed on, even your parents, in, in all their innocence, may think that this is, you know, part of what they're doing is a son. Mm -hmm. And it's not. It may just be a cultural thing that they've adapted because they're in that culture. And people say, oh, well, but this is Islam. And when you when you check it out, you realize that it's not Islam. Yeah. Right? So that, that's just something that you just need to, um, you know, educate yourself on and see really what the difference is. All right, yeah. so. Yeah, those yeah. are good points. I'll just mm -hmm. add um, that it is, we do have to recognize that even if something is just cultural and not mm -hmm. from Islam, that doesn't mean it's easy to right. get out of that because your parents may not care or your culture probably doesn't care, right? That's why right. I keep continuing it. So it is, it's a tough thing because I think I think that's important to acknowledge that she and her particular culture, mm -hmm. they might make it very difficult for a woman to get a divorce. Right. So that may be why she's asking to put it in the mm -hmm. contract. So mm -hmm. it's tough because the thing is, I understand, of course, why you wouldn't do it. But at the same time, if you're marrying someone of that culture, how likely are they to agree? Right. So you're kind of in a you're in a tough bind there. It is. It is. Um, so maybe you might want to seek out the help of, you know, Sheikh or Imam, who you think might be able to distinguish between the two. Mm -hmm. And maybe you can have a conversation. You all can have a conversation that he can understand that, yes, this is this is her right. And um, this is not something unreasonable. It's not an unreasonable request if you so choose to do that. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, um What's the other question? Uh, there was one more, I believe. I think there were a couple more. Let's see. Or maybe two or three more, if you can find that. Maybe there's one more we can look at. Yeah, because time. it's almost time to. So, um, okay. We looked at, oh, I don't think we actually discussed the, the point about getting permission from the wife. If he wants a second wife. Oh no, we didn't discuss yeah, that. Yeah, we just right. mentioned it. Yeah, so what are your thoughts on her uh, wanting to include that in the contract? It's not unreasonable, but I think at the end of the day, it is his right. Um, but I think most sensible men would definitely discuss with their wife, with the present wife, what their intentions are and try to find out, you know, like how are they, how are they going to number one, provide, not not find out, but discuss how will the situation um, end up, um, her getting, her him getting permission, I believe she said from him. Yeah, him getting permission from, from her, her, from her, before he, yeah, would do that. 
Well, it's not an unreasonable request, um, that I would say. Uh, but the reality is, you know, a lot of men would not necessarily agree with that. <laughs> it's just, it's just what it is. You know, you can, you can certainly make that request. Um, listen, there's nothing wrong with asking a question, right? <laughs> so making a request, but and see where it goes. Just be prepared to have. I mean, she, she's not actually saying that she would object. She just wants to be. She wants to be involved in the process. I suppose. And have, you know, some say, I guess. Yeah. You know, so, and that's not unreasonable. So I, I don't really have much to say about it. It's just really mm -hmm. the two of you having a discussion about whatever it is you, you yeah. want to talk about regarding this particular issue. Yeah, putting it in the contract. I don't know, because at the end of the day, uh, like, for example, you can put in the contract that, if your husband takes a second wife, then you would automatically have a, a right to, the, to a divorce or something like that. But the reality is you can put that in your contract. I think it's fine to do if you want to do it. I, I think you're right that I don't know what man would sign it. Maybe someone would, I don't know. Um, but I think it's a tough issue because if that's what he chooses to do, that's that's what he chooses to do with, or if it's in the contract or not. What you just need to be clear about is what you are willing to deal with or not. If you know for sure you're not interested in polygamy no matter what, mm -hmm. you should let him know that up front. Mm -hmm. And so he knows, and if it comes up, then that that's that. That's the end of the marriage. Um, and it, and like you said, maybe she is okay with it, but just wants to be involved and express that as well. I think you can put it in the contract. There's no issue with that, but it's really tough for that to actually be binding. enforceable. Yeah, enforceable. Exactly. That yeah, that's, that's the reality. Yeah. Um. So we have ten more minutes. You wanna? Sure. Maybe. Let's, let's. We can wind it up. All right. Things, so. Let's just. We have ten minutes until. If Tara, let's just do one more. Um, mm -hmm. And then we'll pick it up again when we yeah. um, meet up again, inshallah. Okay, so the wife has the right to work should she wish to. Um, the wife has the right to work should she wish to. As long as working does not impede on her fulfilling her marital duties, working will not deprive her of her right to maintenance. And this is in the contract. Yeah. Again, not unreasonable. It's fine. I mean, the funny thing is that with some of these things, this is already a part of Islamic law. Like you already, yeah. you don't lose your maintenance because you're working unless that's the agreement you and your husband have, but that doesn't happen. And you should never agree um, to that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying, which wife, which woman in her right <laughs> mind would actually agree to that? Okay. Just like a yeah. man in his right mind would not agree to sign a contract with you you know, trying to cancel off his right <laughs> to take another wife. He may say to you, okay, I'm not going to take another wife, but somewhere down the road, he said, yeah, I changed my mind. He has a right to change his mind, just like how we have a right to change our mind, right? But understand yeah. that every, each party has a right to do whatever the next step comes. Yeah, yeah. And you just, you have to know yourself and what you're willing to accept exactly. and what circumstances you're willing to accept it under. Um, and let's see if the wife has the right to work. 
This is another interesting one because I think this is another issue of where culture plays a heavy hand. I think in the West, for the most part, a man, Muslim or otherwise, is just not going to take an issue with his wife working. Um, but she may be in a culture where the man would, and that's why she's putting it in the contract. I don't think it's unreasonable to spell that out in the contract. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't think it's unreasonable. It's not unreasonable because, yeah. again, in the end of the day, we have a right to an education, right? Well, she's uh, talking about working. No, no, no. I'm saying I'm leading that okay. into working because, um, again, as, as human beings, we have the ability and want oftentimes to move beyond where we are, whether it's by circumstance, uh, financially, whatever. Mm -hmm. So if she wants an education, she has a right to do that. There's no negotiating whether or not she should go to school or not. That is her right to be educated. Uh, if she decides that now she wants to uh, work or she would like to work, then again, it's a discussion that you and your husband can certainly have um, because maybe you see the need uh, to have more income coming in and you're being considerate of him, you know, instead of him having to look for another job or something like that, then you have certain abilities that you can certainly lend a hand in uh, working if you if that's what you decide to do. Now, I would add to this that when you work, you also need to decide and you, you all need to discuss, again, what are you going to do with that money? Because, <laughs> you know, as I said before, you know, that money is yours. So if you decide to help your husband out, it's by your mercy that you're helping him out. You're not doing him a favor. That, that is your money, but you also have to understand within the relationship there may be a need for you to help her financially. So I think that in, in, a lot of, in a lot of situations, we really do have to talk about how do we um, be considerate in a marriage? Uh, because what, it really, what really would be the purpose of you going out to work, as you correctly said, not neglecting all of your other duties, um, uh, if you're going out to work and you're making that money, like what are you going to do with that money? Of course, you can say, it's my money. I want to save it. I want to do bigger things. I want to be able to add to whatever income he's bringing in and so forth. Well, I just, is, I would just want the, to feel whole in yeah, that sense. But I think this is the tough part because if a woman says, I want to work mm -hmm. and I don't want to contribute, the man may say, well, why should I mm -hmm. forgive this word? Why should I let you work? Well, what mm -hmm. would be the point for me? Now, alhamdulillah, some men are just going to support you because they know you have an education in this particular field and they mm -hmm. want you to flourish and help in, in that way. But that, that is a real aspect of it, that if you are asking for the right to work and the right to and continue your maintenance, there are some men who may think, well, how does that benefit me? Why would I, why would I allow both? Mm -hmm. that, that's just um, the reality. So that, that's gonna depend on the man. And if working mm -hmm. is important to you, then you, if working is important to you and not paying any bills is important to you, you have to find a man who's okay with that. It's and okay. the, <laughs> the reality is yeah. how many men are okay with that. 
Yeah. I, who knows? There's, I'm sure there's someone. <laughs> yeah, because at some point, it may end up creating a friction, mm. right? So you may you need to have yeah. that conversation, right? Um, because yeah, if you're still going to him, excuse me, yeah. if you're still going to your husband, who is your provider, and say, listen, I need X number of dollars to do X, Y, and Z, and... And he may say, you know, I can't give you all of that at this time, but aren't you working? Like, what are you doing with your money type of thing? Not to say you have to give an explanation for what you're doing with your own money. I mean, that's a right that we have. And um, But I think it's understandable yeah. that the dynamic would shift. If you're taking time from your home, you want to I work agree. I and agree. you're making that's right. money. Yeah it is going to be tough for you to completely, especially if you're working a full-time job, right? Um, working 40 hours a week, making money mm -hmm. and you still go to your husband and ask for X, Y, Z. Again, maybe you will find that, you know, unicorn. But, <laughs> I think uh, after a while it's going to create, it's going to create, it can create a problem. That's saying it's going to create a problem. It yeah. can create a problem because as a family, you're supposed to do things for the benefit of each other, right? Not for you to selfishly. I know some people may take this, this up the wrong way, but please don't, that is not my intent. But I'm saying you can't selfishly say that all the money that I'm making is for me, you still need to provide me with my, what? My $100 bag or, you know, this particular jacket I want and all of that. Mm -hmm. um, never mind how much money that I have. I still need you to do all those things. Yeah. I can guarantee you, it may not be expressed outwardly, but there's going to be resentment. Right? And the reality is, I think in that situation, a lot of men would just go, well, what's the point in you working? And just don't work. You're, right. You would be contributing more to the household if you stayed at home and, mm -hmm. and did the, the household stuff mm -hmm. than to go out and work and make money to hoard it for yourself. Now, there's, there's nothing wrong so to speak with you doing that but i think you can understand why not many men would sign up for such a dynamic because it's one thing if if the wife is home mm -hmm. and she's that's completely her field and so she's completely dependent in terms of financially and then he's completely dependent on her in terms of the domestic sphere then there's that balance right. but if she's not in the home and she's working but the money is not coming back into the home. We're not saying you can't do it. We're just saying like realistically, right. who's going to accept that dynamic. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And definitely we're going to wind up, um, wrap this up soon because we have to break our fast. Mm -hmm. But um, in our next conversation, we need to dig a little deeper. And I need for you guys to think about this as well. Uh, for, for mothers, women who are home, mm -hmm. right? How do you how do you look at how do you look at yourself in terms of your value, your financial worth being at home? Do you agree um, or disagree that you should be paid, even being at <laughs> home as a mom? Right? Because sometimes women don't think about these things. We take care of the household, but we don't get an allowance, we don't request any payment from our husbands, uh, but we are actually doing a job. Mm -hmm. So we do want to, I don't know, just, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, 
a bee got in our house. So I don't know. I guess it's a beautiful day here. So I guess he snuck in, but I'm going to take care of him in a second. <laughs> so anyway, that, that's a conversation that we want to have uh, the next time. Um, is your value at home really being appreciated? And is it being appreciated financially? I know some people might say, what are you talking about? Well, I'm talking about you working at home, <laughs> doing a job. You should be compensated for it. Mm-hmm. And you might get into, well, I am being compensated for it. I'm taking care of the home. I'm taking care of the kids. I'm taking care of my husband. Um, but anyway, we'll get into <laughs> it some more because I really do want to share with you some of the things that we need to consider and start asking questions about and valuing mm-hmm. ourselves even more. Mm-hmm. How do we see ourselves, our financial worth, okay, with everything else that we do? How do we value ourselves financially? Because some women at home are saying, well, don't even have a bank account. Mm-hmm. You totally depend on your husband for every single thing to the point of which you haven't even thought of opening a bank account of your own. You're having your own finances, right? And that's... I know we don't want to get into it too much, but I right. think that is such a crucial point that maybe we can pick back up on next time because you can be 100% financially dependent mm-hmm. without being, uh, while still having, how can I put it, while still having some independence, right? Absolutely. So just because your husband takes care of all the bills doesn't mean that you don't know, uh, I don't know, what the mortgage is or that you don't have your own bank account or that you don't have your own money coming in, Mm -hmm. whatever agreement you have with your husband, Mm -hmm. um, that you don't have your own debit card or something. Um, You don't have, like, being financially taken care of doesn't mean that you are completely dependent like a child. Like a child may not have a bank account or or know all these things, Mm -hmm. but you should still know and be able also to take care of yourself um, if anything happens then, right? If your husband passes away, you're going to just be completely frantic because you no, don't know no where anything either. is. You don't know, you don't know what I the mean, bills are. I'm sorry. I'm laughing because it's funny. Yeah. Um, but it is really a serious conversation that yeah. we need to have, particularly in the Muslim community as women, period, um, that we need to prepare ourselves for certain things that I think that we're totally being neglectful of. Mm. So inshallah, next time we will have that conversation. So please come with your questions and um, we'll get into it, right? So I'm going to say you have a beautiful rest of, of the week and we will talk to you next time, inshallah. Just in time. <laughs>